Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We had some eco data today. Uh, the story of the day is the inflation came in really much hotter than expected, pretty much across the board, and we're seeing reflected here in the markets today. Let's bring in our expert in all things on interest rates and the curve and all that kind of good stuff, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist and Chief uh, Soccer Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, big print here today. What's your takeaway as, as to how we'll see the Federal Reserve react next week? Yeah, so our, our focus really has been on the core services numbers, um, and those continue to accelerate across the board, like you said. Uh, you know, the, the, the issue is if core inflation really takes hold, um, it tends to trend for a very long period of time. So, um, so, so given that you have wages continuing to go up, you still have very significant um, you know, or very tight labor markets in general that should help you know, cause wages to continue to climb, um, you know, that does two things. One, it increased costs and, and therefore, um, therefore prices for, for goods and services. But, but two, and, and I think this is important, um, those higher wages allow the consumer to be able to absorb at least a portion of those right. uh, higher, higher prices. So, um, so, so that, that's how this becomes sustainable and, and why inflation uh, being, uh, you know, going up is a real worry for the Fed. It is, and they've been very clear, Ira, as you've been explaining to us over the last several weeks and months about their focus on inflation here. When we do hear from the Fed next week, given this print we just had, will we get any body language, any inkling of what they may want to do going forward? Because you could look at these numbers today and say, hey, maybe they don't pause here in September. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, so so I think you know seventy five is a given. We're actually pricing some uh, you know modest chance of even a hundred basis point increase. Although I don't think that they'll they'll take go that route and, and increase a hundred. I think they're more likely to do seventy five followed by another seventy five if wow. the September number yep. is uh, is is you know as 
bad as this one was in terms of, of uh, inflation going up. Um, so, so, so I don't think that they'll do 100. But, but, but I think importantly, you know, we do get the dot plot. I know that some people don't like the dot plot, but I think it is in terms of, you know, what a lot of the members are thinking is how far will they go into 2023. So we've, we've been pretty consistent in our view that there would be a, a couple of hikes into 2023, um, you know, after a number like this, which was even higher than what, what we thought, yeah. quite frankly. And we were above consensus in terms of, of uh, how, how, what the number would be. Um, but the, the idea that, that the Fed is, you know, basically, firstly, going to high, uh, ease interest rates anytime in 2023, has, I think, has to be taken off the table, although the market's still pricing for a cut late in the year. Um, so that's number one. And then number two, we still have to find what is the terminal rate, right? Do, do they go to Bloomberg Economics f- uh, 5%? Right. Do they go higher than that even? And with a number like this, if you get another, another number or two like this, I think two things happen. I think one, the Fed's going to go higher, but two, inflation expectations in the market are going to wind up shooting significantly higher, which is what you're seeing today with two-year yields up 15 basis points. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go next, Ira, kind of just looking at the yield curve as people like you and Lisa Bromwitz has been schooling me over the years to focus on this yield curve. I've got a 30 basis point inversion between the two-year and 10-year, not quite the 50 basis points we had recently, but still notably inverted here. What's your takeaway, what we're seeing in the price action today? Yeah, so, so I do think that we'll continue, we'll, we'll retest, uh, I think, that negative 50 basis point level on the twos, tens uh, curve, and, and driven primarily by two-year yields going up significantly faster than, than 10-year yields. You know, 10-year yields are going to take into account, you know, the uh, the coming recession. We will have a recession, right? It's a matter of, of how deep and how long it lasts, right? So those are the kind of the two factors in it, and, and when it starts, obviously. Um, so... Uh, so, so the ten-year yield, I, I think, will ultimately will we'll retest the three and a half percent level, but but might actually hover somewhere in that range where you can see two-year yields. Um, even though our forecast is for um, for three ninety as the peak in two-year yields, there's the possibility that it could go significantly higher, and and particularly with. Um, with, with data like we had today, if, if we continue to get another one or two um, inflation prints that are as strong as today's, then, then we definitely have to rethink uh, you know, where we think two-year yields can go. Ira, I want to ask you about the timeline here. If we're talking about inflation that we think has peaked uh, and is in the rearview mirror, the deceleration seems to be taking way longer than expected. What does that mean for break-evens and for inflation expectations? Uh, yeah, so, so the... Uh, so firstly, it's, it's, things are actually playing out the way that we thought, because uh, the market, we, we had always thought, had um, expected the inflation to decelerate too quickly. And, and you know, again, I, I point to the core inflation measures that we look at, which are 60% of the, uh, of the uh, CPI and, and the PCE, and, and those data continue to climb, right? And, and even though oil and gasoline prices have come down quite significantly, um, even if they come down further, it'll still be more elevated than, than the Fed wants. In fact, we put out a piece yesterday that's available on the, on the terminal, um, noting that if you just exclude energy prices from inflation, uh, two-year inflation break-even, right. you'll see that, that, um, that X energy, we're still talking about core inflation being at over 4% in a year. Right. And you know, that's way higher than, uh, than what the, the Fed really wants. 
All right, Ira, great stuff. As always, we always appreciate getting your perspective here. Uh, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's based down in Princeton, New Jersey. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. A rough, rough day in the markets, no doubt. Let's check in with Sean Cruz, Senior Manager, Trade Services and Client Advocacy for TD Ameritrade. The good folks at TD Ameritrade, they have their Investor Movement Index. And we always like to check in with them to get a sense of kind of what the TD Ameritrade customers out there, the individual uh, traders and investors out there, what are they saying about these markets? Sean, thanks so much for joining us here. What's your uh, IMX index really kind of showing us these days? So, you know what actually was interesting was the IMX index, which is sort of gives us the, the relative sentiment of how investors are, are putting their money to work, work whenever they make um, a, a trading decision, had been trending down pretty much since last November. This past month in August was the first time we actually saw it tick up and move higher. So, I think that to me shows that, you know, the, the, negative sentiment or just some of that cautious behavior as markets sort of march lower and lower throughout the year um, finally started to reverse itself and we saw some some inflows into some pretty interesting areas of the market. Are people worried? Are they taking their cash, stuffing it on their mattress, running towards buying more dollars? Are people worried right now or do you think there's a little bit of a change in sentiment? Um, I think there's there's still some some cautiousness, but I think that sentiment is starting to shift. So although it, it did tick higher, I would say just where the the index reading came out was still a little bit at the lower end of where we'd seen it compared to previous um, periods where they were very bullish and very optimistic. So I, I think they're I don't think they're they're necessarily stuffing cash in their matches. They're finding um, opportunities, um, but I would say the 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 other interesting data point that's out there, and this is put out um, by Finner for the industry at large, is that you're still seeing use of leverage um, fairly low. So they're not necessarily stuffing cash on their mattresses, but they're also not levering up to get market exposure. Sean, you guys at, at TD Ameritrade have a great, great vantage point to see what, you know, 
retail investors they're buying they're selling what are some of the names that they were buying during this period because a lot of folks aren't aren't sure that boy if this is kind of the bottom and i want to make some some stock purchases i'm not sure whether to go to my tried and true tech names or maybe go more cyclical what did you guys see so there was, you know, if you look, there was consumer discretionary was um, it had a, a pretty uh, strong um, inflows into that sector, and I think a lot of that was, was primarily driven by interest in, in Amazon, um, Shopify, and even some of the electric vehicle makers. Huh. Um, Amazon, in particular, I think there you had a little bit of a breakout um, above, uh, you know, what had been a pretty significant resistance level, and it, it had some pretty strong upward momentum out of that. But that's one thing where Amazon is technically a consumer discretionary company, but people are looking to get some sort of a tech allocation because of Amazon Web Services in their portfolio could also be going into um, Amazon for that reason as well. Because we also saw them um, you know, going out there purchasing names like Google and, uh, and Meta as well. But on that tech trade, I mean, what's interesting to me is that I think the story of 2021 that I think people still say is is seeping into 2022, although I very aggressively disagree, is that tech is only responding to rates. And I personally feel that tech has more to do with fund flows that you're seeing from around the world. Asian investors, European investors saying, you know what, we want to buy defensive tech that are still, by the way, the fastest growing companies in the S&P 500. What do you think from a cross-asset perspective, is driving the trade? Um, I do think it, one is there's a little bit of a rotational trade. And, and to your point, it's not necessarily we're going all in on, on defensives or we're, we're piling the cyclicals. I think the view is just looking at companies that maybe have you know, positive earnings, a little bit more of a, a solid fundamental underpinning in, in terms of they can write out anything that's going to play out um, here for the remainder of the year and into next year. Those are the kind of companies that I think has really been driving the trade and driving the investment dollars, um, not, not necessarily going into the, you know, whatever is the, the in vogue as a service company that isn't expected to be profitable for three to five years, shunning those names, but going into names like Amazon, who you know may have some bumps along the way, but I don't think anyone is expecting Amazon uh, to go anywhere anytime soon. All right, Sean, that's good stuff. Appreciate it. As always, Sean Cruz, he's the Senior Manager of Trader Services and Client Advocacy at TD Ameritrade. They have their Investor Movement Index, gets a good sense of kind of what the average retail trader out there for TD Ameritrade, how they're feeling about the markets, where they're putting money to work. So it's always good checking in with Sean to get a good sense of what's going on there. Pretty one of my first jobs in equity research on Wall Street was covering the transportation sector, the railroads, the trucking stocks, um, good stuff. Um, there's a few of them left actually in the public markets, Norfolk Southern, CSX, Union Pacific for the U.S., they're all down about 9 to 17% year to date. This is an industry that's really, really consolidated into just a handful of names. But the big issue for them is a potential strike coming up. And that can't be good for the old supply chain and the economy in general. Let's get the latest. We can do that with Bloomberg Law's Rebecca Rainey. Rebecca, where are we in this process? Just frame out for me what the issues are be between the railroads and, and some of these unions and kind of how it might play out. Are we going to have yeah. a strike? Are we are we going to have a strike? And what's it about? Yeah. So the chances of us seeing a strike um, on Friday 
are much higher than they they were last week. Um, you know, when we were coming into Monday, we had you know, heard that most of the 12 railroad unions who were involved in the dispute had reached or were close to, um, you know, what what is known as a tentative agreement um, with these freight carriers. Um, so, you know, as of last night, there was one union that said, you know, that tentative agreement we had, we don't think we can bring it to our members for ratification. I think that's another piece we need to talk about here, too, even though these agreements are, you know, kind of said for, um, it still requires the membership of the unions to vote to ratify them. So with that change late last night, and then the two uh, largest unions involved in this dispute still not at a deal yet, um, I think it's safe to say the chances are um, rather, you know, concerning that there may be um, a strike this so, Friday. so will that mean all the freight railroads in this country will just stop on Friday? What does that actually mean if they go on strike? Yeah. So while not, again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, while not all of these 12 unions involved in this dispute have reached an agreement, all of the unions have agreed to honor the strike line if, mm. you know, the remaining unions that haven't reached a deal don't reach a deal by Friday. So that means, you know, roughly 125,000 rail workers could be on strike as soon as Friday. Um, and that would, you know, their industry leaders are warning, you know, shut down the entire system. You know, Rebecca, um, I'm reading about this right now, trying to figure out how we're going to be covering this later in the week. And some of the issues here are, are really crucial. It's not just about pay and the wage increases, which, by the way, uh, the agreement on the table, get this, Paul, 24% increase by 2024. Seems uh, pretty good to me. That is a huge alley. It's the biggest wage increase, uh, I believe, in about 40 years, uh, according to some analyst notes that I'm reading, Rebecca. But that's not the only issue on the table here. It's also about sick days, medical leave, health coverage. Talk to us about that aspect. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in regards to the wage increases as well, I know the unions would say a lot of these workers haven't seen increases, haven't seen any raises over the past couple of years, especially through the pandemic. So, you know, they say this is a long time coming. Um, but when it comes to sick leave, um, you know, these two major unions say that whenever, even when it comes to taking time off for routine medical appointments, they can receive, you know, kind of uh, negative points or um, get, you know, negative um, demerits right. towards their, their scheduling. Um, so it's really in, in important, they say, for their workers to be able to take time off without, you know, fear of getting in trouble at work or with their standing um, with their employer. Right. You know, the train companies say that rail employees get, you know, five weeks of vacation in addition to 14 paid holidays. Um, but, you know, union members say that's not enough. They want, you know, dedicated sick time um, as part of this, you know, emergency board that came up with recommendations to kind of help resolve this. Um, they had initially asked for 15 days of paid sick leave each year. You know, if I'm just thinking of, you know, we're just starting to try to get out from these supply chain issues throughout the U.S. economy and the global economy, quite, quite frankly. And there's still a lot of, you know, kind of challenges out there as it relates to the transportation system. I think arguably the last thing uh, this country, this economy needs is, is, is a railroad strike. So given that background, 
What's the White House said? What is their position? Because, you know, you see in past the White House would maybe uh, kind of step in and try to, you know, kind of help get things moving, whether it's the airline industry, the, the railroad industry, the shipping industry. What's the White House position? Definitely. And, you know, um, my colleagues over at Bloomberg um, did report yesterday that Biden and Labor Secretary Marty Walsh have been in contact with the parties um, in this dispute. And, you know, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh was supposed to travel to Ireland this week, um, and he postponed that trip to help give full attention to this issue. Um, you know, we've been hearing that the White House is emphasizing that a shutdown of the freight rail system is just not an acceptable option at this time. So it, it's very interesting because we have a, a very pro-labor administration that is unabashedly pro-union and nearly all of the policies it proposes. Um, but it would be very um, it would put the White House in a tough position to have to go against these two unions who are saying, hey, we want some more sick time. But for, you know, the White House or President Biden to say, hey, you need to accept what we have on the table now. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see if this White House and the Biden administration will have to kind of stand up to unions um, in in this right. juncture. You know, what's interesting to me is also the regionality of this here. You mentioned 115,000 potentially uh, going on strike. Where in the country are we going to see the biggest effects? Um, I think you can definitely, I know there's a lot of concern among agriculture employers about how this will affect their shipments ahead of harvest season. So if you look in those areas, you know, the breadbasket areas, I would say they're going to be feeling this more acutely. Um, when you're Thinking, too, just about the broader economy, you know, officials and rail executives are warning that this could touch every piece of our economy. Um, you know, if shippers aren't able to get products out, this is also going to lead to even bottlenecks or delays that could last, you know, for weeks. Um, we're especially ahead of, you know, the retail holiday season and harvest season. Right. All right. Good stuff. Uh, Rebecca Rainey, thank you so much for bringing us up to date. Rebecca uh, Rainey from Bloomberg Law, giving us an update on what could become a big economic issue. Uh, again, I guess the uh, drop dead date in terms of getting the negotiation done and uh, setting a strike is this coming Friday. Railroads, uh, many of the unions uh, have some issues with the big railroads in this country. And again, threatening to strike Friday. Hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get uh, some type of resolution before then because that would just be a, another challenge for this economy in terms of supply chain challenges. Brent Donnelly, he's president of Spectra Markets. He's been doing this currency thing on the street for a long time, so he knows what's going on. Brent, I'm just going to start off with my kind of my stock FX question, which is, is there a bear case for the greenback? Well, the funny thing is we had a bear case for the last week or two. We had uh, PBOC and the Bank of Japan pushing back on dollar strength. You had some good news out of Ukraine. You had the ECB kind of stepping up a little bit. And then you had like a big pocket of demand for euros around one double O. And then today, just everything unwinds in two seconds because the problem is, so BOJ and PBOC can push back all they want, but they're running the loosest monetary policy in the world. So they need help from the data and they're just not getting it. So now, again, if BOJ is pegging yields at 25 basis points in the 10-year, you know, Dalian's just going to go up. They can say whatever they want. Dalian's just going to keep on going up. 
But how long does that last? Because I, I, it feels like the bear case for the dollar uh, that you just referenced, a lot of that came from interest rate differentials, the idea that if the ECB uh, surprises the market in some way, that ends up creating a bull case for the euro, and therefore uh, you sell the dollar off the back of that. But even that was a temporary scenario. So how long does the bear case for the dollar really last? Well, that's kind of my point, is that it doesn't last very long. We get these quick little moves for maybe a week or two, and there's like a ray of hope for dollar bears. But then, bam, you know, one, either one side, either on the energy side in Europe or on the rate side in the U.S., the hammer just comes down again on the euro, and that's what we're seeing again today. So to me, it's very reminiscent of 2000, 2001, where it's just an impulsive move, and really nothing's going to stand in the way until you get like a fundamental turn in U.S. rates, which obviously we keep waiting for and sometimes pricing, but never actually is delivered. So it's, you know, Tom Keene and the surveillance radio and TV team, they're over in London covering the uh, the Queen's uh, upcoming funeral. So they're benefiting from this strong dollar. But as you, as you think about the euro at parity, the pound at one spot, one five, do you just trade those things or do you just stay away from European currencies? Well, I mean, the, the trend is still intact. So I think a lot of people have just been playing the trend all year. Really, that has been the, the play is just that's been the right playbook has been selling rallies in euro and, and sterling. Of course, now we're in a in territory where valuation starts to come into play and you start to see changes of behavior like M&A, cross-border M&A starts to change. You know, Americans start going to Europe more. But all that stuff just takes forever to bleed through. So, um, I mean, for me... I've had a couple of brief forays being bearish dollars, but it's just never fun. The fun is always <laughs> selling rallies in Euro. And, you know, a, the, the DXY went much higher than this in, in 2000, 2001. And there's a lot of parallels to that period. So, you know, any, any long Euros is a rental, and, but you can own the short Euros for a while. What about the pound here? Because it feels like now that we've I want to say, talked about euro dollar parity. It's in the rear view mirror to some extent, really just hovering. It's actually literally at 1.0009 <laughs> at the moment. Uh, but the pound here, we're looking at one spot, one five. I I'm curious if pound parity is realistic by the end of the year. So I'm less pessimistic on the pound than, than many people, but there is a scenario where they're issuing so many gilts to finance the the energy subsidies and um you know they're also not doing quantitative easing in the uk anymore so there is a scenario where there's a buyer strike and gilts crater and and sterling craters i'm not a huge believer in that just because i find in g10 usually eventually higher rates just attract capital so at some point real money will just want to buy gilts because the yields are high enough but there definitely is a more emerging markets type of scenario where you get the bond sell-off and the currency sell-off. Like I said, that's not my base case, but I mean, there's a lot of strategists are calling for that. And that kind of scenario would take us to one double O in sterling. Brent, what's the your FX market telling you about this Federal Reserve? I mean, it's had a, you know, kind of a tag around its neck of being behind the curve. But if we get a third 75 basis point uh, rate increase uh, next week. Is that still a fair characterization of the U.S. Federal Reserve? I mean, I would still argue yes, because we're just getting to neutral still, and we've been you know above 5% inflation for more than a year. So 
you know, the Fed should have been, I think, by most measures in restrictive territory months and months ago. So okay. I would say yes, because the, the size of the rate hikes is just commensurate with how loose they were. What are you buying today? In your, if you're trading today, and I'm assuming you're going to trade a gajillion times today, what, what are you buying today? <laughs> Uh, dollar yen now. I think now that the, the BOJ is coming up, and I don't think that they're going to do anything, and that just opens the door for 150 and dollar yen. Brent, very quickly, is currency intervention a, a logical thing to be considering right now when it comes to dollar yen? No, because the, usually the framework is monetary policy and currency intervention have to be aligned. So if you're pegging rates at 25 basis points, selling dollar yen isn't going to do anything. So when they get to the point of actual pain for Kuroda, so the Ministry of Finance is already in pain, but Kuroda is sort of kind of trying to hold off as long as possible because he's out in March 2023. So what you need for intervention to work is coordinated monetary policy. So they would have to raise the yield curve or raise the yield target and then intervene, and that would work. But I don't think we're there yet. All right, Brent, good stuff. You're a go-to guy on all things currencies and big, big moves here. Again, I can't think of a bare dollar case. So I'll just keep buying the dollars. I got dollars in my pocket, literally. So that's appreciated. Paul has one of those old like cash wad holders. I do. Yeah, money clip. I haven't seen uh, really outside of uh, the National History Museum. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much. Brent Donnelly, he's the president of Spectre Markets. He's our go-to person when we talk uh, currencies here. And again, uh, DXY index one spot. Uh, I'm sorry, 109 spot 55. That's up 1% today. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Big, big moves in these markets. Is it an overreaction? Let's check in with uh, Ellis Pfeiffer, Managing Director, Fixed Income Capital Markets for Raymond James. Ellis, when you take a look at the equity markets, when you take a look at the uh, treasury markets, big moves in the short end of the, of the curve here, what do you make of these moves we're seeing in the risk assets today on the back of that higher than expected uh, inflation print? 
good morning. Um, yeah, I think it's it's pretty much a knee-jerk reaction that's um, probably a little bit overdone. I mean, the equity markets obviously have a little bit more to contend with because they've got uh, not only the inflation issue, but potentially you know, the Fed tightening us into a, you know, a softening economy, bringing us forward into a, a recession. So there's a little bit more issue there. On the bond market side, um, you know, obviously the, the move up is, is uh, a bit of reaction to it as well. But, you know, the, the numbers uh, underneath are a little bit more predictable than, than what um, maybe the market should have thought about. Um, and I think it is a little bit of an over, overreaction on, on the bond market side for sure. So given kind of the backdrop of, again, the data we've seen over the last few weeks, including most notably today, what do you expect our Federal Reserve to do next week? Not so much, I guess, the rate increase, because the market seems to be fully discounting a a 75 basis point increase, but maybe some shading around the edges in terms of kind of how they might view the next couple of meetings. Yeah, I think they're going to, you know, they're going to continue to talk tough. I mean, their their biggest concern is the consumer's behavior. You know, they don't want to don't let the inflation expectations get unanchored as they like to call it. So, uh, people to behave differently and start acting like there's, you know, price increases and start uh, rushing to to buy things to sort of become some of a, somewhat of a spiral uh with rates higher. So that their job just became a little bit harder today uh in in trying to contain that uh inflation behavior. And so I think they're going to try, you know, continue to talk tough and, and let the data speak. And, and, you know, this month and next month are the easiest months for the CPI data to actually beat on the upside, you know, surprise on a negative basis, you know, when it goes higher than expected. Um, and then it's starting in October, it's going to be a little tougher for it to beat. The base effect comes back into play. Uh, and so it may be a little bit easier for them at that point um, uh, to, to maintain that behavior. What does that mean for the Federal Reserve's credibility, though? I mean, the deceleration here, when you're looking at some of the CPI data, is is not as fast as I think the market was expecting or really hoping for. A hundred basis points of a hike would come with a lot of questions around, um, is the Federal Reserve panicking? What else can they possibly do here? I think that just it is very difficult again for them to to try to contain this behavior, and it, and it is tough talk. Um, you know, the policy error to hold off uh, is is in, in hiking to begin with uh, has been compounded now, um, and now they they are in somewhat of a I don't want to call it a panic mode, but they're obviously having to to talk a little bit tougher than they expected. I mean, this this we haven't seen in so long this 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 type of inflation. People just aren't used to it, and and they're. Their biggest concern, again, is containing those expectations uh, and trying to keep them anchored, so to speak. Um, and the bond market is is uh, hasn't become unanchored. Um, the consumer is what they're really concerned about, and so um, if that begins to to become unanchored, then they, they will have to panic. I mean, that's that's a full you know full on Volcker type mode, um, but I don't see that happening. I think you know I think they're looking ahead at the data and saying this these numbers are going to be tougher to beat. And I think it's going to be, you know, we're going to just continue to talk tough and, and let the data kind of kind of come here. Um, and, yeah, the 75 basis points, like I said, is, is fully baked in, and I uh, expect that to happen as well. Ellis, what are you seeing on the Raymond James desk here, the capital markets desk? What are your clients telling you about kind of their base case? Are they baking in recession scenarios? Are they rushing to shore up their balance sheets? What are you, what are you hearing from your uh, corporate clients? Yeah, there's uh, you know there's still good demand for loans. Um, there's there's still good activity if it could be had. Um, the problem is there's a, a lack of liquidity in the in the depository system. So, you know we're seeing, you know, 
consumers taking out more money to pay for the goods because their wages aren't you know maintaining um and so the banks and, and the depositors are also seeing a potential recession so they are kind of viewing that um and so we're seeing some tightening of lending standards so you have to be more cautious uh in, in the loans that you are making so but you know with all of that comes this um you know, drain of liquidity that they're not actually spending much money on the bond market either. So there's, there's, you know, they've been one of the big uh, gorillas. You know, when the Fed stepped back from buying bonds, the banks were there to buy them, and they're they are they have had to pull back as well. So what's the, what's the sector that you're seeing the most interest in right now as you as you kind of think about your capital markets activity? Yeah, we um, uh, we've been talking to a lot of clients uh, about uh, buying, uh, more, adding some duration to the portfolio. Okay, uh, that's that's probably seeing a little bit more reluctance than anything. Um, but you know, uh, adding in a in the form of uh, deeply discounted callables and and mortgages are probably a very good play at these levels. Um, you know, that there's a risk reward that has drastically changed in those two sectors uh, in favor of the investor. All right, good stuff. L.S. Pfeiffer, Managing Director, Fixed Income Capital Markets for Raymond James, joining us, talking to us about kind of what he's seeing out there in these markets. Let's check in with a professional economist, Simona Mokuda, Chief Economist at State Street. Simona, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, Chief Economist at State Street, that means a lot. You've got a big sway on the portfolio managers at State Street who run a lot of money. What's your takeaway from the print we saw today? Well, I will say it was a bit of a punch to the gut, right, when the data first came out and you've seen the acute market reaction. But if you are willing to take a step back uh, from from the initial shock, I think I would describe this as a stumble, but not a fall on the path towards disinflation. I think the next story in the U.S. inflation picture, and frankly, not just U.S., but globally, is a fairly powerful disinflationary episode that's ahead of us. Well, what I'm curious about, though, is the pace of the deceleration. I've been asking every guest this uh, since, 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 since the show began today. Simona, walk us through the timeline that we get inflation back to even 4%. Yeah, I think, um, well, let's, first of all, let, are we talking about headline? Are we talking about core? Headline. Let's talk about headline. I think headline, you're looking, frankly, second quarter of next year, you could be in that range. It's hard to, you know, picture that perhaps right now, but we are having some very, very powerful base effects that come into play here. And more importantly, I think a lot of the indicators that a year ago were signaling that we have an inflation problem on our hands have now uh, turned much more encouraging, whether you're looking at uh, pricing intentions, whether that's in manufacturing, whether that's the small business survey. So even, you know, even today we got the NFIB um, survey and the price plan measure in that survey is now at the lowest level it's been since January of 2021. Um, it's going to take time for these things to feed through into the CPI number, but they will eventually make their way there. What's the risk in your mind, in your model, Simona, uh, of the Fed pushing this economy into a recession? Um, I, I, you know, frankly, whether it is a recession already or not is not the 
even the most important question. I think it's undeniable that we are in a meaningful slowdown episode. So the way I would rephrase the question is whether the Fed is making this slowdown worse than it needs to be. I think the risk of that is fairly high, actually. Um, I do believe that uh, we are seeing substantial improvement on supply chains, but the Fed is no longer in a place where it can, you know, uh, act on hope and expectations and even perhaps their own forecast, but rather they have to respond to the data in hand, and that's not providing much relief so far. So I think, um, you know, we are probably going to end up tightening a little too much and be forced to unwind that. Um, that will hurt the economy a little bit more uh, than otherwise would be the case. But I don't think in any of these scenarios we are really talking about a genuine crisis, right? So that's the silver lining in this cloud. I'm wondering about the liquidity picture here, because we talk about it all the time from a market's perspective, how that could actually crunch financial conditions. But from an economic perspective, quantitative tightening is something that the Fed hasn't really undertaken in this size and in full, uh, even going back to the last tightening cycle. Your take on the success rate of this operation? Well, that's another reason why I think uh, perhaps there is some wisdom in being a little more careful on the rate side itself, because you do want to be able to continue this process in the background. You do want to reduce the balance sheet, and you might not. You're probably trying to avoid the situation where you're being forced into ending this process prematurely. So, we are watching that. We are thinking about that as a, you know, uh, as a market function in liquidity risk. I. Th- think it just adds to our viewpoint that you know it's it's some caution on rates is warranted especially the further you go beyond neutral and for sure will be quite a bit beyond neutral after the September meeting all right, Simona, thank you so much. We appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective. Simona Mokuda, chief economist uh, for State Street, uh, definitely uh, seeing maybe some disinflation still in the picture, which I would say that doesn't feel like it's a consensus. Bring in our next guest, Ed Rosenberg, senior VP and head of ETFs for American Century Investments. And American Century, folks, is a huge money management outfit out there in Kansas City. When you were a sell-side analyst, you had to go out there at least once. Usually I went out there twice a year to get their vote. That's how big they are. And they're now big in the ETF business. Uh, Ed Rosenberg joins us here in studio. He is a graduate of Muhlenberg College and an MBA from Penn State University. I am wearing my Penn State little hoodie here today. Um, I wrote a lot of tuition checks to Penn State, so I get this little shirt here. Ed, talk to us about the ETF business. Ever since I've really kind of followed ETFs, the story has just been funds flowing to ETFs. Is that still the case, and what's driving it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually more so the case than ever before. Wow. There was a period in time like through 2014, that's it was a lot of individual stock traders shifted over to ETFs first. But for the last eight, nine years, it's strictly been right for mutual funds for the most part. And there's a ton of reasons. But the first one is uh, ETFs, I don't want to say are more tax efficient because mutual funds can be, but ETFs historically have not paid a lot of capital gains distribution, so it's made them more tax efficient. And in years like we have today where the market's down, right? it's the worst thing for an advisor to say, oh, your fund's down 30% and it pays a 10% capital gain. That's just a hard story. And going into ETFs helps eliminate that conversation. Can you talk to us a little bit about 
the here and now. The markets are tanking here. The S&P 500 down 3%. The NASDAQ, Paul, down 4%. Oh my yep, gosh. Yep. Um, and, and the dollar continues to be a session highs yields as well. Walk us through the impact that you foresee on the ETF world. So I actually think days like this and months that we've had, the last couple of weeks, I'll say, so I'm going to call it a month, including today, can be really advantageous to ETF flows. We're kicking off what I like to call ETF season. So you'll see this is the largest quarter when we hit the fourth quarter for ETF flows every year. And a lot of that has to do with the tax loss harvesting from other portfolios. And if you've owned a mutual fund, let's say for 10 years, right, you put 10,000 in, its total value is 20,000. But your real gain if you sold it today is only 1,000 because of the market pullback and all the gains it paid. It's an easy solution to sell that and go into something more tax efficient. Or if now you're at a loss because quite frankly, it paid so many gains over the years, it might have, you still might be up on a total return perspective, but it's an easy time to sell that. And so across the board, Muni struggled this year, right? So, and other fixed income instruments struggled. Yeah, big time. You're not alone. You can do this in equities, you can do it in international. Anything that's owned EM has really struggled this year, especially if you had exposure to China. And then once you get into fixed income and just regular equities, there's so many places you can start to do this with. And who wants a tax bill at the end of the year, especially in this year? I mean, when you normally have a good year, you're frustrated paying taxes, but in a bad year and you're like, that's my bill, that's a much yep. bigger discussion. And you can avoid a lot of that by lo taking losses and moving into ETFs. What's the, what are some of the hot areas in ETFs? Because it just seems to me as I read the headlines, there's just an ETF for every shiny object out there. Uh, I'm not sure if that's good or bad for the space, but where's the real money going? Well, my joke is not everything, because I was joking there should be a baseball card ETF, right. but that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but, I mean, if you look at this year, flows are a little bit pale in comparison to last year. A lot of the money's gone into just large cap US, right? Okay. It's stayed away. There's some international flow in a sense, but it's, it's significantly less than it previous was. You're talking a third. It's only about, year to date, it's 58 billion. But if you look at just US, it's 187 billion in flows through the end of August. That's tremendous. And fixed income, right? Yields rose, money went into governments early. You've seen money flow into munis. You've seen money throw into like ag products throughout the year. And the other thing, investors were kind of smart about how they did it. When you're talking about this, it all the majority of the fixed income exposure, about 111 billion, talking 40% went into short term, and another 20, 25% went into intermediate. And so the investors knew that rates were gonna go oh, up and it was right. gonna be a tough year, so let's get short. And let's be realistic. We haven't had these types of rates on funds uh, in 15 years, 14 years, right? So there is some type of yield to be had that investors finally get going forward. The other place that a lot of money's gone into is value, but it's a specific portion of value where it's dividend. Okay. It's $50 billion dollars in the U.S. And it was, again, it was that search for yield for so long. So take this us cross asset here. You talked about the stock picture a little bit. Uh, walk us through things like appetite for bond ETFs, appetite for even commodity ETFs, given this kind of obsession with inflation hedges in the last uh, year or so. Yep. Currency ETFs are more complicated, so I'll leave I'll spare our radio audience uh, for that. But walk us through the cross asset story. Yeah, so fixed income's been popular, as I said. It's about 111 billion. And there's been a lot of investors moving in now, tax loss harvesting from funds into ETFs to take advantage of one, the yield, and get that tax loss. But other areas of the ETF market, the niche products, some of those have taken off, but you mentioned commodities. Commodities, 
this year have been muted. You're only talking about five, six billion in flows. Last month was negative. And it's interesting because you get the, the one educational piece you have to remember is when we talk about ETFs, they're really exchange traded products. And there are several different structures out there, right? Some are under the 40 Act. They, they're regular ETFs. They behave and, and pay taxes similar to like your mutual funds would. But then you get into things registered on the 33 Act and 34 Act. When you go into gold, they're collectibles. You could be in a partnership. What can you be? And you get a K-1. So a lot of people have struggled with some of those. And if it's all futures, you have to look how it's set up. And so while money's gone into those, there's been more straight into gold than anything in this type of environment. But it's also the structure. Advisors have to be leery and investors have to be leery of what the consequences of that structure is. It's not bad if you know what it is, but just understanding that. How about the structure of the entire market? It's basically effectively a duopoly, State Street and Vanguard. That's not good. Well, it's a little more than that. But, um, you know, the top five make up 90%, 85, 90% of all the assets. But those are the basic products. And if you look at how the market's starting to shift, Right? Those products have been around for a long time, and they're in a lot of models. So as you put money into a model, whether it's through a wirehouse or through an independent broker-dealer, or even RAA may have access to it, they're just in there. But if you look at the active ETF landscape, 60% of all launches this year have been active. 68% last year were active. And in the year before, it was about 51. It was the first year that active dominated. The growth in active has been tremendous. You're talking a 50% year-over-year, uh, three-year growth rate. And beyond that, you know, we'll say three years ago, it was a $100 billion marketplace, 85% was equity. Right. Now you're talking it's 458 billion active. Wow. And it's, you know, almost getting closer to 60-40. So it's not just all, you know, fixed income anymore, it's equity as well. All right, good stuff. Ed Rosenberg, Senior Vice President, he's head of ETFs at American Century Investments. Uh, They're based in Kansas City, Ed's based in New York, and he joined us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, so we appreciate him taking the walk across the street here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.